Welcome to The Lisa Show. Financial planning and budgeting can be tricky. At the start of each year, many of us will make great resolutions to be more savvy with our money, only to forget about them months later. Um, Sticking to a budget and having a savings plan is something that a lot of people have good intentions with. Mm -hmm. And it, it is a surprisingly emotional journey. And especially if you're coming together as a family or in a marriage, you have all of this sort of uh, emotional attachments to money and budgeting and what that means from your own family of origin and then another person and their sort of, you know, ideas of what it is. And coming together and establishing new financial goals for budgeting, planning, all that kind of stuff can sometimes be uh, a difficult thing to navigate. So I just want to clear the air because my wife, who may be listening this morning, Mm -hmm. uh, I want her to know that this was not my suggestion that we talk about budgets. <laughs> oh, got but it. We have uh, already this year had several conversations around money. Uh, she has found herself into a new, fairly expensive hobby. And oh, we've had to say, hey, yeah. so what does this monthly budget look like? And for someone who has never set out, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't careless with money, but mm-hmm. had never set out a, hey, this is you know, what a, a strict budget sort of mm-hmm. looks like and mm-hmm. how much you can spend in a month, etc. Let's just say we have learned a lot so far. <laughs> learned a this lot year. about each other. Yeah. Now, boy, we could unpack that. We're yeah. not going to do that. No. <laughs> because we want to bring into the conversation an expert to really talk about this. So, we're going to bring into the conversation Loris Sprung, friend of the show, financial expert, um, to teach us how to make, you know, this year, to make no matter where we've come from, better choices about making and saving money. Thanks for being here, Lawrence. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Now, I I feel like every time um, people have conversations around budgeting or savings, it becomes very personal. And huge life events can cause us, you know, a lot of stress or to reevaluate that kind of budget. In my case, it was the death of my husband. And I'm looking at all of, uh, you know, the budget and... um, you know, and making financial plans, it seems to shift a lot in these kind of big moments when people are like, this is the time for me to look at everything, right? Uh, As far as budgeting and uh, making financial goals. When it seems so overwhelming, where do you have people start this process? Yeah, that's a great question, Lisa. And, you know, first and foremost, you know, my condolences on the loss of your husband. And, you know, that's a that's a difficult thing to uh, to to tackle for sure. I, I think that really what people need to understand and do is not just all of a sudden start a budget when those life events take place. Mm-hmm. I think what they have to do is create that budget well in advance and look at it on an annual basis, and then perhaps tweak it when those life events happen. So it makes it a little bit easier to swallow, and at least you have a baseline of where you can start from. Hmm. Um, So I think that helps things. Now, if you don't have a budget at all, then you have to get one together today and start putting that together so that you have that baseline. You look at it. You know, it's one thing to create the budget and then it's quite another, you know, as Rich (laughs) mentioned with his wife, you have to make sure that you're sticking to the budget Mm -hmm. because you don't want to find out six months later that you blew the budget in month one. So so what exactly is a budget then? Because like some people, I think, would say, well, you know, I make this much money, I'm not ever going to go into debt, so therefore I have a budget. Or people will say, well, I make my credit card payments, I I do all that, and that in and of itself is a budget. So there's more to it than just a budget per se. Yeah, and I think for every person, what a budget is is a little bit different uh, because some people you know, are fine with looking at the money in and the money out, mm-hmm. and they live within their means no matter what. And then you have others that need a little bit more structure. And I think that's where things get complicated and emotional because mm-hmm. we have a tendency to uh, make it more complicated than it is. And we get stuck in the weeds sometimes. And what ends up happening is we have paralysis by analysis. So, Ooh. you know, if you want to start easy, very easy. You look at yeah. what income is coming into the house and you put it down and write down all of those sources. And then you put a listing together of all the expenses that you have. 
And if you're really not sure what those are, it's very easy. Go to your checkbook if you predominantly write your bills out of there, or if you put it on a credit card statement, pull up last year's credit card statement and get an idea of where the money is going to and create those line items. And where I think people get hung up sometimes, mm -hmm. you're never going to account for every dollar in and every dollar out. So you got to do the best job possible and figure out what's coming in and what's going out. And if the budget shows that you have more money going out than coming in, <laughs> then you have to look at that expense line and see where you want to cut things or what you can eliminate. You know, some easy, easy things that you can get rid of, or maybe you have a subscription service mm. that you're getting hit with every month that you signed up for three years ago that you haven't used. Get rid of it. Um, those are those are easy things to take a look at. Where we don't get involved is mm -hmm. telling you what you should cut and what you should keep, because in a lot of places, hmm. that's a very personal decision. To some people, yeah. having cable TV with all the channels on it is important to them. Mm -hmm. uh, and to I'm others, only laughing because that's me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And to others, going out to dinner every weekend is important to them, and they would never cut that out. So you have to come together as a couple or as an individual and figure out where those ideas are that you can eliminate those expenses. Talk uh, about talk about though the power because mm. uh, I don't think that many people know how much money is even going out in a month. I remember uh, whether very, they're over very, or underestimating. Or, is that what you or, mean? Or just whether, you know, they, they probably are like, you take, for example, I probably spend, uh, you know, $200 going out to eat. And when they actually look at it, they're spending $700. I don't think right. that we really mm -hmm. are aware about that. Why is that such a vital first step in making the budget? Oh, because you have to, I mean, if you don't know where it's going and what the reality is, then you're going to live in this false reality that you're on budget and you're not, and you're never going to be able to get ahead of the financial situation and be able to to, to save. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think even one step before you even look at that is, you know, what we tell people is, you know, you want to pay yourself first. That is key, whether you're paying yourself through your 401k or your retirement plan and putting money into that plan before the check even ends up in the bank account, or if you don't have a company retirement plan, setting up an IRA and deferring money there on a monthly basis, pay yourself hmm. first and then look at those expenses. And you have to get that reality of what it is, Rich, that is going out and really know. And it may change from month to month, but as long as you have an idea of what the average is over mm. the course of the year, that's really one, you know, what you want to look at. You know, during holiday times, right. expenses may be higher in certain areas. Uh, during other times of the year, during summer, you may be going out to eat more. So you have to look at what the average is and, and see where that money's going and be mindful about it. And, you know, one of the most difficult things is today, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, everybody paid everything with cash or a mm -hmm. check. So it's much more simplified to know where the money's going. Now you go, you swipe the ATM, you put it on the credit card. <laughs> you know, you don't, it, it's like going to Vegas. You don't really know where the money's going because you don't have that tangible item that you're holding on to and handing over to somebody else. If you're just joining the conversation, we're talking with Lawrence Sprung, who's a financial expert about saving and making financial goals and budgeting at the beginning of this the year as it is and, and how to move forward. So as you're looking at that, and, and I appreciate you acknowledging that there is sometimes a little bit of a paralysis for a lot of people of, oh, where to start and what to do. Is it more important to pay off debt or to put money into savings each month, knowing that both are important? but that this is a real you know, dilemma for a lot of people. So what I say to that is all debt is not created equal. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we have a tendency to put all of our debt into the debt bucket yeah. and we treat it all the same. And it's not, um, there is a distinct difference between mortgage debt, mm -hmm. a car loan and credit card debt. And when you're, itemizing those expenses and looking at that budget, that debt component should be a piece of it. And you want to see where is the debt? Is it on the home? Is it a car, a personal loan, mm -hmm. or is it a credit card? What is the rate? You know, if you're looking and your only debt is your mortgage and your rate is, let's say, 3%, I wouldn't be so apt to start paying that down as quickly as a credit card where you might have a $10,000 balance and you're paying 23% interest. 
that's going to be more vital to tackle. So what you want to do is lay out those debts, see where they lay on that plane of, you know, fairly good debt versus bad debt and create a plan for paying those down more Hmm. quickly. Now, you mentioned earlier that as you're looking at your budget, you can find things to cut um, like subscriptions that you might you know, have forgotten that you signed up for for you know, a variety of things. Are there other sort of easier ways to identify where you can save money each month that, that are often overlooked? Yeah, I think the easiest thing is really looking at that credit card bill. Uh, if if that's what you use or however you pay your bills, look through that register, look through that reporting mechanism and take a look and say, hey, is that something that I regularly use or is it something I don't use and could do without? And, you know, maybe give it a one or a two ranking. One, you don't need it. I could get rid of it. Two, I want to keep it. It's a, it's a must have. And then after you go through that whole list, look and see what's available for you to cut out and how mm. much of that budget and that expense you could potentially get rid of. Because, it, you know, listen, it may be one of those things that you think you really need, but if you got rid of it, canceled it, stopped it, stopped doing that, whatever it is, and didn't pay it for a month or two and didn't use it, see if you miss it. Mm. Maybe you don't. Maybe it's not a need. Hmm. Oh, the particular credit card that I use, uh, they have a, a, like a tab, a button that you can click and you can see what the recurring payments are uh, every month. So you can say, oh, oh, I don't even know what this is. What oh. is this? What is this thing that is $12 every month? Did mm-hmm. we sign up for this and be able to look at that? And I think most card services have those now. Now, people will also look at this time and try and do some no brain savings, things like uh apps that can connect to your credit card or to your checking or savings account. What what are your thought or feeling about those sort of no-set savings or no one-time s- set, one-time set savings? What do you mean? Where you're automatically depositing money into an account or something like that? Yeah, it could be things like that or like the, the Robin Hoods or the Acorn apps that, that are now starting to become pretty popular that can help us like to you round up on a purchase. Yeah, to sure. sa- to save money but without having to think about it at all. We just sort of set the process in motion and then and then that's it. Listen, that, that those are good tools for for people who uh, think they're good tools. For some people, it's great because they need that discipline and that ability to have that forced savings. Other people do that already, maybe through their four hundred one k. So um, they're automatically putting money into that account. So anything, listen, anything that can help mm, you mm-hmm. save money for later on in life and do it in a way that's not going to impact your lifestyle today is a great tool because Hmm. the earlier on you start putting away money, the better off you're going to be because if you invest it properly, you'll get that benefit of compound interest, which I like to refer to as the eighth wonder of the world. Uh, (laughs) It's really something that can really help you out. Um, And like you said, Rich, there are tools that will look at these recurring payments. There are also tools that will help you dissect where the expenses are going and group them into, you know, categories. And if you don't want to or don't feel comfortable with creating that spreadsheet type uh, situation, you can link your bank account up to systems that will get or bank account credit card that will give you an overview of where those spendings are going. But reality is anything that helps you for savings is a good tool. So I want to take a little step back and get a, a, a bigger picture idea. When we're making financial goals, um, what's important to keep in mind when we're ready to do it, we're sitting down and we're making those big goals? What kind of questions do we need to ask ourselves? I don't think with big goals, I think you should just write them down. Okay, because nothing can be achieved if you don't write it down and have a goal for it. So I think you have to write down the goal no matter what. And then you have to start backing into how can I achieve this goal? You know, if your goal is to have a million dollars by time you're age 55. Mm -hmm. okay, how are you going to do that? What what am I going to need to put away on a monthly basis, a weekly basis to get there? and start breaking it down to smaller bite-sized chunks. If your 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 big audacious goal is I want to be debt-free by such and such an age, then you have to look at that debt, look at the interest rate and see how and what you're going to need to do to chip away at that debt for that period of time to reach that goal. 
I think a lot of what we're talking about here comes mm -hmm. from the fact that we're talking about resolutions, mm -hmm. right? People, mm -hmm. people coming into the new year, they're really excited. They, they create these resolutions. And what happens is, as you probably know, and your listeners know, 99% of all resolutions go away very yeah. quickly because we're not committed to them. But if you create habits, and you create a habit with creating goals and a budget and all these items we're talking about, then it's going to be an everlasting and sustainable thing that's going to stay with you in your life and continue you on the path to where you want to be in reaching those goals. Our time with you is very short. I would just ask you this kind of in, in parting. Um, so many times when we think of resolutions, as you sort of placed it, we think of, you know, getting in better shape and we think about hiring a trainer. Essentially, what you are and what you do is a trainer for someone with their money. Is it a thing that people would regularly set up and, and meet with you or someone like you without the throughout the year or is something that could be accomplished with, mm. hey, here are some behaviors and habits. If you stick to these, then we wouldn't have to meet with you or someone like you again. Yeah. So I, it, again, it depends on the person, right? Some people just need that little readjustment, that little guidance at the beginning of the year, or maybe at the middle of the year to say, okay, here's what you should be doing. Stay on track. We'll just check in with you in six months and mm -hmm. make sure that things are going well. Uh, just like the gym, you know, some people you set them up with a workout plan, they go to the gym and they'll be able to execute it for the entire year. No problem and stay on course. And then you have others that you give them that same workout plan and it, you know, they do it the first time they go to the gym. And after that, they're like, oh, I'm not, I'm, I can't stick with this. Mm -hmm. Same thing here. There are other people that need that ongoing advice and guidance that may require a monthly interaction where mm -hmm. they're getting the advice and guidance to make sure that they're on track and readjust. And it may take a little bit longer. They may convert from, you know, the person who needs that ongoing to the semi-annual if and when they get on that track and create the habit in, and go away from the resolution. Lauren Sprung, a financial expert and founder of Midland Financial. You can learn more about managing your assets or how to become more financially savvy by visiting his website, which is midlandfinancial.com, or you can listen to his podcast, The Midland Money Mindset. Thanks for being with us. Coming up, more of The Lisa Show. Hey, you're listening to The Lisa Show. Starting a company is an intimidating prospect. It involves a lot of moving parts with lots of long work hours. So it would make sense to go into a business with someone you trust and who you know you get along with, someone you like. And there are plenty of success stories of friends turned co-founders most notably Ben and Jerry. They're, they're killing it, doing a great job. I think about them all the time. I love that most notably it's Ben and Jerry. There are There are literal thousands of other friends who've gone into okay, business, like but you went Hewlett with- Packard. I yeah. mean, yes, okay. other examples. But for every successful story of friendship to business partnership, there are many more that just simply don't work out and ruin friendships, right? So mm -hmm. here to talk with us today, if is if about- not only the realities of starting a company, but the realities of starting a company with a friend. And factors to be aware of throughout that process is best-selling author, Dr. Norm Noam Wesserman. Welcome, Dr. Wesserman. Thanks for being here. John, it's my pleasure, Lisa and Richie. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I, first of all, when we're talking about a business and a startup, I, I, I would love just to sort of lay that foundation before we really get into to the friend aspect of it. What's the most common cause of failure in startups? So uh, it's actually a bit surprising. I remember being surprised by this, despite my having had a bunch of founding experience. Mm -hmm. um, there was a paper that was published by a guy who became a close colleague of mine at Harvard Business School, published more than 30 years ago. And <clears throat> what he nailed down on that, and there's been some repeated things since then, that I highlighted is not product problems. It's not product market fit. It's not the usual things that we think are the big reasons for the failure in startups. Mm -hmm. It's actually the people problems. Really? That 65% of the reasons for failures within startups is because of the tensions between the co-founders or between the friction between them and the other people who brought in to go and work with them. And so it's the soft, squishy, subjective people issues that are actually the ones that are bringing down the highest potential of ventures. Wow. So if we can get that down on lock, we're setting ourselves up at least more likely for success. So we look to those that we know, whom we've associated with. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes those would be our friends, but certainly colleagues within the same field. What kind of ground rules as we set out to, uh, to do a, a company together or a startup should we be setting up? So, no, there's a bunch of things that we can go and take a look at. Like, 
across that landscape of the people problems, there are a bunch of human factors that are very natural inclinations that we as all humans have that come back to bite us. And this is the domain that you're talking about here. The founding with friends is a classic one of where we go and succumb to a lot of those where we actually think that it's the promise of founding with friends that we don't appreciate it as the perils of founding mm-hmm. with friends that we have to go and acknowledge. And so it's very understandable that you go and found with your friends. Uh, it's very easy to find them. They're nearby. Uh, it's people with whom you already have trust, as you were going and saying at the top of the show, that yeah. the ones you trust and know that you get along with them. Um, it's critical to have trust in a founding team. And yet those assumptions that we're going and making that the easily findable people and also the ones you already trust, that's where a lot of the problems come from. Because if you go and think about the people who are nearby you, now, there's something that academia calls homophily. That's the tendency of birds of a feather to flock together. Mm-hmm. People who are more similar, we go and find a lot more comfort with being with them. And that can be magic in the social realm that you go and find that comfort with people. But when you're going trying to <clears throat> start a company, that can be a real problem because you're going to find one techie who's going and finding another techie to co-found with mm-hmm. instead of going and finding the business person that's going to be able to go and fill in their holes. Um, and vice versa. You go out and two business people who go and found, they're doing a tech company without a techie on board because they felt much more comfortable with each other. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to leave gaping holes on the team, and it's going to cause problems because of that homophily. One of the key things when you're asking about what can you go and do from the beginning, have checks on your homophily. Go and consciously acknowledge mm-hmm. that I have this bias towards that birds of a feather, and let me go and create that checklist of what I'm going to have to do to be able to be good and have the company excel at what it's doing. And at the most basic level, to go and create that company, I'm going to need someone who knows how to build a product or a service and how to go and sell it. And if you're the techie, you're only going to have two check marks in the, in the build box. And you're not going to have any in the sell box. Um, or if you're the, the flip side, you're going to have a double check box and an, and an empty box in the other ones. Go and use that checklist to go and make sure that you're not going succumbing to that similarity there. Um, the second piece of it about the people that we already trust and things like that, um, <clears throat> let, me, excuse me, let me go and give you an example okay. uh, from my own personal life where I realized that in some ways the English language goes and sets us up for failure when it comes to trust. Um, this is back 2009. I got a call from a friend of mine. My wife, I, at that point, we were almost married 20 years at that point, very close trusting relationship. Um, my wife is an MD. She's a doctor. I'm an LGB, OBGYN. Mm-hmm. And we got a call from a friend, and the friend said, no, I'm have to go and get uh, the latest edition of Boston Magazine. They're doing their best doctors of the year uh, issue. And your wife is listed as one of the top four OBGYNs in, the, in, the, in Boston. Nice. I was like, I turned around to my wife and said, wow, here, listen about this. I like, told her what he had just said. And then, unfortunately, the one line that went and shook the world a little bit, but also gave me insights into it, I said, honey, I didn't even realize you were any good at what you do. (gasps) So I was hoping to get to my 20th anniversary at that point. Uh, But um, essentially what I realized at that point was very deep trust in the personal relationship. But I had no idea if she was any good in the professional realm. Hmm. It's a completely different exercise to go and be good in each of those. And yet we make that bold assumption Mm -hmm. that if we have trust in one, we're going to have trust in the other one. And the unstated assumptions, those bold assumptions are the ones that get founding teams into trouble when they go and assume that this really good friend of mine who I already trust, A, that that trust is going to port into this very different arena of, of the of founding together of the professional one. So you go and think of what does it mean to trust in the social arena. Mm-hmm. Trust means that person is going to have my back, that I can go and make sure that they're not going to go and do something that's going to be against my interest. Mm. You think about what it means to trust a coworker. It's something completely different. Right. That's talking about confidence. Yeah. I trust their skills. I trust. And the problem is when we go and make the assumption that they are synonymous, and then we have the rude awakening where, as it turns out, that actually I don't know that she's going to be really good at what, the, what we need her to go and do, even though I can have the confidence that she's going to have my back. Then it's even more crushing when suddenly mm. you're realizing that you know, this person isn't up to the task. I was making the bold assumption that my friend is a superhero and what they go and do professionally and competently, but – Actually, no, the trust that I had before is misleading me about that. And so those are a couple of the things, so the bold assumptions and the biases that we bring into it that make it into not the best of the ways <laughs> to go and found when it comes to uh, the risks that you're taking and things like that. It's not the glorious team that we're hoping it's going to be unless you go and manage it right. Instead, it's actually the riskiest of the ways to, to be able to go and found together. 
We're talking with Noam Wasserman, if you're just joining us, about the question, really, should you start a company with your friend and the things that you really need to consider? Uh, I appreciate you bringing up the, these ideas of trust that in a social arena will be different as a coworker for a friend. For those who are listening who are either at the beginning stages or trying to decide if they should really have a, a healthy or if it's a, a professionally compatible um, business or startup, what are some of those you know, specific kinds of questions they need to ask each other or, or factors that, that they can look at to help them be a little bit more prepared to answer that question? So let's go and take a look just a bit more broadly at those people problems that they have to go and be thinking about at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, the one that we've been talking about is just one of the three major arenas mm -hmm. of the people problems that they have to go and think about early on. Um, I like to capture them. This is what my research, so this is based on data on 20,000 founders. This is based on decades worth of, of work on and things like that. To go and encapsulate all the findings from that, um, the biggest early decisions that founders make that come back to bite them when it mm -hmm. comes to these people issues are things that I call the three R's. So the first of the R's is what we've been talking about, the relationships you're going and tapping. Mm -hmm. Is it good to found with friends, found with family, acquire coworkers, other things along those lines? The second of them is the roles in decision-making, being able to go and allocate the titles within the team, how you're going to make decisions together, and other things like that. And it's actually very tied to the way that you go and make your relationships decisions. Um, some of the most ill-thought-through roles in decision-making decisions are tied to who you go and co-found with. Hmm. Um, if you go and co-found with your friend, you're not going to be able to go and say to that person, you know, I know that I'm better qualified to be able to be CEO than you. <laughs> you're going to go and punt on it, and yeah. you're going to say, we're co-CEOs. We make decisions by consensus. One founder, one vote. And living in that Neverland, like we're all peers here, there's no hierarchy and there's no adult supervision or anything like that, yeah. tends to be the most common of the models that they adopt early on, but also one of the most fraught, especially as you go and grow, are you going to be able to go and live in Neverland forever, or is it going to go and lead to gridlock and, lock and tension? Mm -hmm. uh, when you have a 1-1 one, one vote on regular things, then it's going to cause major issues for you. So those are the first two of them, the relationships and the roles in decision-making. And then the last one is the rewards. Uh, dominantly, the financial rewards, the, uh, how you're going to go and split the ownership of the venture, and when you're going to go and co-found with your best friend, when you're going to go be co-CEOs, even if you shouldn't be, far more likely that you're going to go and punt on also splitting the ownership well. You're going to go and toss out, oh, we have to be equal owners. We have to do the 50-50 split. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that happens to be, in the research, that happens to be the most ill-fated of the ways to go and really? split the equity. <laughs> that is where the most common of the decisions, this is a recurring theme across all of these, is that because of these biases that we have and the unstated assumptions we make, we tend to go and make the decisions that are the most ill-fated. Hmm. We think it's going to go and heighten the potential of the venture. We think that it's going to go and get us to the glory of co-founding with our friends and being sure. co-CEOs and things like that. And it actually happens to be the worst of the decisions to be going and making because it heightens the risks and other things like that. When we go and punt on the difficult discussions, there's another one of the biases that we have built in as humans. We tend to avoid conflict. Sure. Yeah. We go and avoid the elephants in the room, the tension-filled conversations. And as a co-founding team, that's where it's going to be. That, like the classic elephants in the room are these three R's. We're not going to go and discuss what are the implications of our being best friends as we go and, and found. <laughs> right. We're not going to go and have that deep discussion about who really should be the final decision maker. We're not going to go and discuss how the person who is going to be going and adding the most value should be incented the most and own the most of this startup. And when you go and punt on those most difficult of the discussions to go and have, it's just going to come back to haunt you even more so because it's going to be even harder to be able to go and deal with those down the road. And so discussing early on the three R's, being able to go and really have a serious discussion rather than punting on it mm -hmm. and shucking them aside and saying, you know, we don't have to go and um, do a really good job on this because we're going to go and conquer the world together. It's all going to be glorious when we go and do that. And they don't realize that all of those are ifs. If we can go and do this well as mm. the relationship side, if we can do this well within rewards, if we can do this well within, you know, all of these other things that are going on, then let's go and make sure that we're going to be able to get this done well. And unfortunately, when they're going and focusing on that rosy view of the world, you neglect to go and discuss the pitfalls. You yeah. neglect, you don't even want to go and acknowledge it to yourself, let alone surface, well, what happens if one of us isn't able to go and scale with a venture? We're going underperforming yeah. and dragging it down. Mm -hmm. What happens what do we if do then? we're going to... Yeah, exactly. And so what we have to go and have founders do is go and acknowledge the risks that they are taking and then go and take those risks and really have a di deep discussion about if this happens to us, then what are we going to go and do and how can we right now front load a bunch of those things there. And so this is getting into like one of the other biases, just go and tee up the that won't be me bias. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you go and hear about disasters that friends of yours faced, or that you go and read in the press about a founding team that blew up, and you just go and say to yourself, well, that won't be me. Yeah, we would never. Really... We are too close. Yeah. We are too close to friends. We won't let friends. that happen. You know, no, exactly. I, I would be curious to ask you, you've, you've studied 20,000 startups. This is years and years and years of study. Um, those companies, because likely there's someone listening to this that is very much in this situation. Mm-hmm. They and their friend have started a startup. It's not working the way that they, they would like it the to flags. be. They know that they need to do something. From those companies that you you studied, those partnerships that you were able to observe, the ones that made it through this, what were the tactics that they used to take it from, we have made a mistake in how we started this, but we're able to push through and pivot to, and now we made these changes and we're able to be successful? Yeah, no, Richie, you're hitting on one of the key things that is an element of these human decisions. We have to go and separate out two things. One of them is that, and this goes back to like my beginnings as an engineer, um, if you go and design a flawed system to begin with, it's going to be really hard to hit the undo key. It's going to be really hard to go and patch it and be able to go and turn it into a healthy system. And so all of these kinds of people decisions are the hardest of the ones to go and hit the undo key on. Mm-hmm. Like, it, to be able to go and design it right to begin with is a critical thing because once you've gone and co-founded with that friend, once you've gone and avoided the difficult conversation, it's really hard to hit the undo key on changing that co-founder, on going and undoing the early arrangements that you've gone and done. And so, um, A, one thing is to be able to go and be proactive about this, understand the road ahead of you, and then go and anticipate and avoid the pitfalls rather than hit a bump in the road and then say, oh, what am I going to go and do now? It's really hard to hit the undo key on it. If you're going to go and try to hit the undo key on it, um, the a critical thing is to be able to go and find someone who will be able to go and be the hand that is going to be the objective outsider to be able to go and help you be able to undo some of the, the social problems. It's going to be very hard um, for you yourself to go and get yourself out of trouble without having someone that both of you as co-founders hmm. respect are going to be able to go and listen to because mm-hmm. once you go and get into trouble with your co-founder, everyone's going to be going and just looking for their own interests even more mm-hmm. than you would expect, you know, than, hmm. uh, than if it's strangers that you went and co-founded with. You, you actually can take a more objective view when someone was a co-founder as a stranger than you can when it's someone who is very close to you. And so that outside party, the third party, and this also gets into a bunch of the other dynamics around acknowledge the risks. Uh, we actually happen to call like co-founding with friends, calling playing with fire. Like, we go, and when we play with fire, we hope it's going to go and forge a stronger team, but actually it leads to our going and getting burned unless we go and identify the risks with playing with fire and we create firewalls for it. And one of the key firewalls of being able to go and force the difficult conversations is to be able to go and find that respected third party to go and do that for you, mm-hmm. um, to be able to go and reduce the damage that we have um, that, that we're going to go and cause to our personal relationship. When we go and have something blow up in the, within the venture, we talk about creating a prenup with your co-founder. Oh, Being wow. able to do the equivalent of like surfacing a disaster plan. What happens when we're at each other's throats in the venture? Who's going to go and step away from it? How are we going to be able to go and during the calm days be able to create that prenup that's going to be able to go and dictate what are going to be the things that are going to happen in times of disaster when it's harder to, to go and deal with them. And so thinking down the road to when you're playing with fire, what are those firewalls going to be to go and increase the chances of tackling the difficult conversations and then creating those firewalls to be able to go and prevent the, the startup from going and blowing up or creating the, or pre- preventing the, or ca- causing the personal relationship to blow up. Um, there's actually interesting. I got onto Twitter for the first time in months mm-hmm. just this morning because I was tweeting that I was on with you guys on, uh, on BYU radio. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that I, there had been a discussion about these issues that people were going and citing my work on. And there was a founder who went and weighed in on it um, that said, back in 2016 to 2017, this happened to me about the team blowing up. Um, and he said, it not only cost me the business, but oh. an amazing friendship. Uh. And that's what you hate to hear. Yeah, Dr. Wasserman, uh, our time is up, and we appreciate the conversation that we've had with you. Dr. Noam Wasserman, a best-selling author, just a couple of his books. Uh, one is called The Founder's Dilemma, Anticipating and Avoiding the Pitfalls That Can Sink a Startup. That's a tremendous resource. Another one is Life is a Startup, What Founders Can Teach Us About Making Choices and Managing Change. If uh, if you want to find more information about Dr. Wasserman's research, you can go to noamwasserman.com. You're listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. Welcome to The Lisa Show. 
You know, there's nothing like winter and the chance to build a snowman, go sledding and skiing, uh, snowboarding, have hot chocolate by a crackling fire. I know I'm not alone in saying that after a couple of months of snow, I do start, though, to miss the light and the warmth of the spring or summer months. It has to be a little bit of a balance. Here with us today is longtime friend of the show, Carrie Ann Rhodes, to tell us simple ways we can bring a little more sunshine into our homes, especially during this winter season. Welcome, Carrie Ann. Good morning, Lisa. This is something we all need about this time of year. Yeah, I, you feel it, right? I had a really generous oh, yeah. friend. Shout out to my friend, Kathy. Without saying anything, she mailed me what's called a happy light. <laughs> we had been that? talking about it for a long time. It's one of those lights. It looks like it actually looks like a little iPad and uh, it just is light. But it's the sunshine light, the right kind of UV rays. I don't know. Science yeah. tells me that it will make me happy because it's the right kind of light. I have, I don't know if it's um, if it's uh, if it's true or not, but I feel happier. I just turn it on when I'm doing work at home. I think that's a great idea. There are many lights on the market that provide that kind of full spectrum light, but that it's safe to have in your house. It's not like mm-hmm. a tanning light or something right. like that. Right. But, it gives you, but it gives you the right light and they come and they come in all sorts of yours is shaped like an iPad. That's really cool. I've got one that's like a ball. It's like it's, it's like a glowing ball. Oh. And I just turn it on while I work at my desk and feel like I'm getting vitamin D therapy. Have you been using that for a long time? Have you found that it is something that works or is it just a fad? It's, it's definitely, there's science behind it. It's definitely not a fad, but um, I think sometimes mentally, I feel like I'm doing something for myself during the winter time. <laughs> You're not giving up the fight, which I appreciate no. you acknowledging of like, guys, if something's not working, we got to just try something else. And and we're not also having this conversation necessarily to talk about literal light in or lighting in your home, although it certainly could be that. But are, what are ways that, that, that all of us can really make winter a more magical, you know, kind of time of the year, which is, I think, what we go into the anticipation that it'll be like? <laughs> but then after so many months, we sort of lose that. How can, how can we recapture sort of that magic in our homes? We are, we are all doing our best. But wintertime, we're already we're already here. We're we're already kind of in our house. And so this week, I kind of was thinking about little things, or I was trying to find out or gather little things that can just bring like a little bit of joy um, into your house just by its sheer presence. So um, I, I was looking around, and you know all the plants that you've collected during quarantine. Yes. <laughs> um, I thought, isn't that funny? Like, they're they're starting to they're starting to kind of take over the surfaces of my home, and so this week I found a cute little plant stand that will hold multiple plants in one area, and that way I can kind of um, as they're taking over other parts of the house, I can bring them all together and make like a little tableau of my plants that I've actually managed to keep alive for more than like a couple months. Right? That sounds like not only a way to, to bring a lightness and a warmth, you know, a hominess into your home, but also like it's a project. It's like a new hobby. So how, how could, how could we do that? Um, at, where do we start to look for those kinds of, you know, either oh, like containers or, every, or ways yeah. to do it? If, especially if you don't have a green thumb. Oh, as, as I do not, my, my thumbs are, completely flesh colored. I don't know what's the opposite of green. Red? No. Plants, as you know, are indoor plants are having a moment. They're, they're having, they're definitely having a style moment. And so finding interesting or creative or just eye catching ways to display your plants is, is easy. You can find, you can find ways to hang them from the ceiling. You can find lots of interesting plant stands that don't attach to anything. So if you live in an apartment, if you live you know, somewhere where you can't just like drill a hole in the ceiling, many ways in which to display your plants. And I'm not going to leave you alone. Um, there, there are, there's support out there for those of us who do not have the green thumb. Um, oh. There are YouTube channels. There are TikToks uh, that you can follow, all giving, giving you simple tips and tricks on how to care for your indoor plants, which honestly, like, <laughs> I, that I need that. <laughs> so much. So, you know, TikTok is good for something out there. Good to know. Not just for dance videos anymore. <laughs> Not just for dance videos. But for your indoor plants who are, quote, having a moment. That's 
right? They're having a moment this year. Um, another fun little thing that um, I was looking around my house and thinking, you know, what little thing, what little gift has brought me joy? Um, what's something fun? And um, something I love is my little trinket dishes. Um, and they might be in a little drawer, like a pen drawer. I have a couple of them in my nightstand table. And um, they've been gifts from other people or they've been purchased um, maybe on a trip. You know, Remember back when we took trips? I, or, I don't um, know what you're talking about. I've heard about them where, um, you know, it, it holds my rings or, you know, one of them holds my, my earplugs. Oh. <laughs> and um, I, I can remember so-and-so gave me that when we were together or um, that was for my birthday that one year from so-and-so. And so I, I was looking um, around and I found the cutest little trinket boxes that are shaped like macarons. You know, oh. the colorful meringue cookies that have a filling inside and they come, they come in every color of the rainbow. They cheered me up, and I immediately um, bought a set of six. I think they cost six ninety five on Amazon, and was so excited to put some put a little memento in those boxes, and then send them out as gifts to to people I love to bring a little sunshine to them. I love what you're talking about. Is not only cultivating your own home for a little bit more joy and happiness, but sharing it with others and and giving it away or something that, that, that brings you joy. That's really inspirational. Well, we do have um, Valentine's coming up. And for me, Valent- we'll talk about this next week, I think. But Valentine's has always been about, um, it's a friendship holiday. Like, if, especially this year when we've been so kind of starved for you know, friendship and gathering. And has, the last year maybe has not been the greatest dating year for people. Uh, let's let's double down and make this Valentine day about reaching out um, in friendship and, and, and remembering people and sending those little bits of sunshine or a note or happiness. So I'm, I'm ready for that. I'm ready for that kind of holiday. For those who are looking to spruce up their, their home decor, they're not quite ready to, to decorate for spring maybe yet, but they want a little bit of, of color and, and, you know, in something simple, that's not too expensive. What do you recommend? Stencils. What? Stencils? <laughs> stencils. Um, there's a whole world of stencils out there that we've kind of forgotten about because remember, remember in the you know, 80s, the yes. duck and heart stencils that, you know, our mother's kitchens had stencils around the top of the border or kind of whatever. Um, stencils have become so much more sophisticated Um patterns available and um, even going on Etsy and just googling stencil um, you can find roller brushes that basically have a pattern that you roll onto your wall and we're talking from interesting geometric patterns to woodland scenes to um, and anyone can do motif. that you don't have to be anyone like a designer like I'm just thinking that could get really messy well, they they um they do assure us that the instructions are easy, <laughs> but I have I have used stencils in um, at least two of the houses that I've lived in for a quick kind of it can be an accent wallpaper look, but you do with paint and you do with one stencil, so an investment of twenty dollars, and I have created a wall's worth of wallpaper look, and so that is definitely an affordable. You can even make your own stencils with um, an exacto knife and um, stencil plastic that you buy from a craft store. So it's a, you may need some inspiration. Go online and look what I'm talking about because it's difficult to describe on the radio, but, but finding a stencil that can add um, a pattern or add a mural to your wall is an easy, cheap way to just kind of add some decor while you're inside anyway. But Carrie Ann Rhodes, you are not only the friend of the show, and you are not only an interior designer, um, but but you really give us a lot of insight on on how to incorporate our own home into this. You know, as a, I, I, you know, I want to use the term homemaker, really, in in, the, in a beautiful sense of the word of like creating this not only design but also feeling in our homes, uh, right. no matter what our budget is. And so beyond sort of just oh, what's a pick me up for? for the the winter blues i'd also like to talk about the the idea of creating that kind of feeling in our homes no matter what our situation is that that can feel a little bit better and brighter and certainly after we all are so sick of being stuck at home you know more often than not 
I I think that we've we've also been on this kind of decluttering kick, you know, as a as, as a culture. Like decluttering and um, organizational shows have been extremely popular on services like Netflix and on cable, um, HGTV kind of shows. And I think it kind of um, it goes along with this kind of movement that we want our spaces to be important, that we want them to feel um, personal. But we also we also really desire to have some like organization and some peace of mind that comes along with that, and I think that stems from a desire for our places to have meaning, for our homes to have meaning for us. And I'll share a quick anecdote about what I mean. Um, as we look around our spaces and really think about what's important to us, my parents just moved into um, a new home. They changed locations, and some of their furniture that they have had in their, you know, main like living room area for a long time, they suddenly, you know, had to pack it up and bring it into this new space. And it gave them the chance to look at it with new eyes. And they realized that some of the things, some of the items, some of the, you know, kind of knickknack things that they had been looking at for years and they're really important to them, they realized are, are no longer important for them to have them displayed out for everyone to see. And so they moved some of those items into a more private room where they could still enjoy them, but that they weren't, they didn't have to be part of like the family story any longer. And so it's things like things that belong to another generation or, or things that meant something to a mother or a father or an aunt or an uncle that don't maybe have meaning for you, but you hold on to them because they have that family meaning. And um, it kind of gave me and the class that I teach, my interior design class, kind of food for thought about what do we have out and what do we have displayed? And do those things really reflect you or your family or this generation? And maybe consider um, making room, um, just taking those things away and creating space, creating peace of mind um, and keeping them. I'm not saying, you know, get rid of that stuff, but maybe just kind of, Open your mind to opening up some spaces by putting some things away that have been out for years and years and years and just enjoying having that space mentally and maybe physically. What I'm struck about what you're saying is that it allows not only for space, but for you to take a step back and to say, is this space or is this thing serving me or do I just kind of want to mix it up? And it doesn't cost any money. Not at all. And you may need you may need the eye you may need the fresh eyes of someone else to help you with this. Because we see our own stuff and it becomes invisible to us, right? And so like a little knickknack that we've had on a shelf or had, you know, sitting on a table for years, we don't even see it anymore. Where someone with fresh eyes can kind of come in, even on Zoom, and say, Hey, what is that? What does that mean to you? Could that be put in a, a box? Um or could that be moved somewhere else? So if you, I always need that help. So don't be afraid to ask for another, an outside opinion. It's a really proactive approach to it. Let's say that someone doesn't have that, that sort of uh, uh, energy to sort of take a step back and really like shake things up. But they're looking for something a little bit more simple, like a different throw pillow or a change in curtains or anything. You know what I'm saying? Like a, a little bit more, right. um, hey, like this could be a, an online uh, sort of fix for that. Are there any, <laughs> what are the hot uh, colors this season and and textures that could transition us from winter to to spring in a simple way um one of the most interesting kind of new colors that i'm seeing a trend in and and, in things like vases and flatware and window film and headboards is an iridescent finish you know just kind of that rainbowy yeah i'm actually really surprised that you would say that (laughs) an iridescent like kind of almost like it's like gray with shimmery or is it the dark sort of Uh, outer space sometimes sometimes it can be like a metallic-y iridescence but I've seen it in so many products and thought you know those are interesting ways to bring like multicolor um into your into your interior I mean it kind of gives things definitely a bright because it tends to be shiny like a like a shiny iridescent kind of finish, but um, it brings a lot of color, uh, which brings kind of a vibrancy, like this kind of energy into the space. Um, even those window films, the, the, they're kind of prismatic so that as the sun shines through, you get kind of a rainbow effect in the room and it provides privacy. So if you if you love the light, but you're not 
you know, looking for like a curtain. Or if it's somewhere where you've got like just a sheer across the window, you could try a prismatic window film. But even even with that, um, I saw in an interior, someone had put a disco ball in a plant holder and it sits it sits by a window so that every afternoon when the when the sun comes to that window for a couple of hours they have disco ball light just reflecting re- refracting all over the room and they they were saying how cheerful and how much they look forward to that time of the day when their kitchen or whatever turns into a disco. I thought that was cute. What an unusual idea. I remember <laughs> as like a little kid having a prism by the window sill and being fascinated by it. But put a disco ball, you can talk about science and refracted ball. light and what white light is. It'd be a science experiment for your kids. <laughs> I liked that it was something to look forward to in the day. Right. In the afternoon. <laughs> Design that changes. I it's love right. it, which is a talking point. Wow, that I did not expect you to say that. See, you are always coming up with new ideas, Carrie Ann. I love that. So you are t- taking a step back you uh, from your home. I'm always so curious about how an interior designer goes about, you know, from room to room, changing things all day. It seems to me that you would want to change uh, constantly each room. Uh, how, how do you how do you approach that as a professional? <laughs> Um, my my husband has uh, after you know 21 years of marriage he has gotten used to it that you know at, once we get one room done my eyes are going to start wandering uh, to the next and, and you're never done luckily no I'm never done and living in an older home in my 1957 home we have plenty of projects to keep us to keep us to keep my wandering eye busy for the next several decades so our next plan is redoing a bathroom we've just refinished uh, we've just redone our TV room. Um, and added a flooring and paint and brand and new shelves. Wow. And um, as my budget allows, we're moving to bathrooms next. Okay. It's always so fun to talk with you. We always have so much to talk about. We have 30 seconds left. Very quickly, what have we left out about quick, simple changes? Um, the last thing that I had on my list was easy organization things. And I, I'm focusing this month on cords. I hate cords. And I'm looking for solutions that, that bundle cords or that hide cords. And I have my eye on a beautiful bamboo box that's a power station where all of those little electronics can go at night and plug into one source and be, be in one place in one cord. So maybe that can be your focus, too. Great tip. Thank you so much for your time, Carrie. And it's always a pleasure. Carrie Ann Rhodes is a friend of the show who specializes in making happiness, comfort, and home align in the home. And she's also teaches interior design. You can follow her on Twitter at Carrie Ann Rhodes. Uh, So fun just to think about the power that we have just to make things just a little bit brighter, a little bit better, not just for ourselves, but in our homes and for everybody who lives there or comes. And so we would love to hear your ideas about how you're making things brighter. We always love to hear from you. The Lisa Show at BYU.edu is the best way to uh, contact us there. Have you downloaded the BYU Radio app yet? If not, it's free, available in whatever application store you use. Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show.